Well, welcome. welcome to all of you joining us from wherever you are and from all over the world uh, to this our 78th edition Palestine Deep Dive, where I'm delighted to be joined once again by Kenneth Roth. And uh, this evening we're going to be talking essentially about uh, the idea of a one-state solution. Um, Ken has recently written a piece for Deutsche, Rea uh, Deutsche Welle where he referred to it as a one-state reality and reassessing the international approach to Palestine uh, and, and to uh, Israel. And to all of you out there, please do get in touch, send in your questions. We want to hear from you. We want to know uh, where you're from and, and what you have to say. Now, Kenneth Roth, as you know, is an American attorney. He's a human rights activist and a writer. And for a long time, he was executive director of Human Rights Watch. Uh, in fact, from 1993 to 2022. Of course, some of you will be more familiar. More recently, he was offered a fellowship, of course, at the Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. And uh, that was actually blocked at the time by the dean of the school, Dean Elmendorf. Uh, and there was uh, certainly a belief at the time that essentially the dean had given in to some of Harvard's donors um, who asked or have been strong supporters of Israel. But on January the 19th, there was a huge reaction, as you know. Um, Ken got an, a great deal of support from right across academia, but from way outside academia, from uh, politicians, from journalists, from campaigners, from, from people right across the world. And the Kennedy School actually reversed its decision uh, and it re-offered the fellowship. And the dean uh, said that his initial decision had been an error and it was not intended to limit debate at the Kennedy School about human rights in any country. Kenneth has, has, has been very, very magnanimous, but he responded that really the dean hadn't said anything much to identify the people who mattered to him, the people who um, uh, the dean said had helped make his decision, decision for him and who were behind his original veto, um, and has said all the way through that full transparency is key to ensuring that such influence is not exerted in other cases. Anyway, that's the good news is that Kenneth is there at the Dean, but he's very busy elsewhere. He's actually joining us from Geneva today. Um, and um, welcome, Ken. Uh, just to say, my name's Mark Seddon. Uh, I, uh, I've been a journalist for most of my life. I went to work for Al Jazeera in uh, New York before joining the United Nations, where I was a speechwriter for former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and I've worked for previous presidents of the General Assembly. Um, as I said, please send in any questions you've got. We've got Kenneth. He's very kindly uh, said that he can be with us for a while this evening. And I just wondered if we could perhaps begin, Ken, with this very fast-moving situation in Israel today. Um, the Netanyahu government have just succeeded, we understand, in pushing and in, in actually having these, these uh, legislative plans to reign in the judiciary passed in the Knesset. Now that it has passed, um, this is kind of a seminal moment in many ways because uh, many many observers have said this has essentially been a kind of battle for secular democracy uh, as against uh, the, 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 a more theocratic state. Um, and I suppose the first question to use is, is really looking at it from a human rights point of view. What does it mean for people in Israel now in terms of their judicial rights. Are you able to tell us something about where 
what has actually happened? What is, what is so important about this decision of the Knesset and where could it lead? Okay, well, first, um, Mark, let me say I'm, I'm very happy to be back with you again and to have this chance to, to chat this evening. Um, let me put um, the judicial debate in, in perspective in Israel because it's important to recognize the nature of the Israeli government. Um, it is a remarkably unchecked government in that you know there's no president here. It's a purely parliamentary system. So um, whoever has the majority in the Knesset can decide. Um, there's no even Senate or you know sort of second legislative chamber. There's just the the one chamber of 120 members. Um, it's there's not even a federal system. You know there's a single government. It's not like you have states in different parts of Israel. Um, and so there's enormous power that has collected in the hands of the prime minister and his parliamentary majority. And the only independent check on that was the Supreme Court. Mm. And so Netanyahu and his extremist far-right government has gone after the Supreme Court because it sees the court as an obstacle to its fairly radical plans, as far as we can see. And you know, initially, it was going to try to really undermine the independence of the court in, in fairly radical ways in terms of how judges are selected and the like. Um, but there was so much opposition to that that it decided to you know, take a sort of a salami approach to the court and to slice away at different parts of its power. And the first step that it took, the step it took today, was to attack the court's ability to rule that governmental action was unreasonable. Um, now, this is important because I should have said Israel has no constitution. There's no Bill of Rights. You know, there is there are sort of legislative enactments of certain rights, a certain basic law. But um, the court really, you know, didn't have a constitution it could look to and say, ah, oh, you know, this violates article such and such. Its main tool was to say this government action was unreasonable. And the Knesset, Netanyahu, just took that power away. And so this really means that the government is quite unchecked and it could do any number of things. I mean, you, you talk about, um, you know, this being a, a very you know, nationalist religious group that, that has a different conception of Israel from the more secular, more pluralistic group of people that really created the state of Israel. Um, there are plans um, for the occupied territory, um, which could go so far as annexation. It could go worse than that. We don't really know. But um, this is now an unchecked government. Um, it does not have the most basic checks and balances that in most democracies are essential to enforcing basic rights. I suppose Netanyahu would turn around and say, well, of course, ultimately the Israeli people will decide they go to the polls. Um, but, I, but, but following on from that, um, for those who have been so vigorously campaigning and battling against all of this, uh, people are asking the question outside elsewhere, why? Why Why does Netanyahu want to do this? Yeah. Well, first, Mark, I mean, let me just address the answer that you gave. I mean, I think you're correct. That's what Netanyahu has been saying. We won the election. We can do what we want. But that misconceives what democracy is about. You know, yes, free and fair elections are very important, but democracies are not pure majoritarianism. Democracies are majoritarianism constrained by the rule of law and basic rights. And for those, you need an independent court system. And that's why Netanyahu is chipping away at that court system. Now, why is he doing this? 
I think it's mainly about self-preservation in two senses. You know, one is we all know he's facing corruption charges. And um, I, I think he fears that if he were to press the attorney general to withdraw those charges or to somehow, you know, give him impunity for what he's alleged to have done, that that would be deemed unreasonable. So he's trying to constrain that. But he also, you know, in order to save his skin, is desperate to retain his parliamentary majority. I mean, why is um, Netanyahu has always made a point of, you know, somewhat ruling from the center right? You know, why has he joined this extreme far right government? It's because that's the only way he could stay in power. You know, so many people in the center wanted nothing to do with this man who was facing corruption charges. And so, you know, a lot of these extremists in his government want to get rid of the court, which they see as a constraint on their plans for the occupied territory. And so, you know, again, this comes back to his self-preservation in a more political sense here. He needs to maintain that coalition in order to maintain his power so he has a chance of fighting these corruption charges. This is, of course, um, an individual who had a new pacemaker fitted yesterday. I mean, his, his you know, his, his health isn't all that good. Um, Self-preservation, you you do wonder, um, you do wonder where this really takes him. Uh, if it's uh, it, it, as as you were saying, many of the, many of the critics have said this is yes, he's very afraid of uh, the corruption allegations that have been made against him. He's afraid of a free. Uh, judiciary for all of those reasons you just do wonder about how far he's prepared to take these things and beyond and how much he's prepared to give to those he's in coalition with well i think the problem is that the far right is in the driver's seat right now because if they were to pull out of the government the government would fall and and netanyahu would be you know on his own to face the corruption charges so he is um really you know, I, I think has, has essentially handed the keys to the government to these far right extremists. Mm. And you know, we don't know their full plans, but it's not hard to imagine them. And and Kenneth, it does look as though he's been completely impervious to outside pressure, if indeed that pressure has really been applied. I mean, um, President Biden has made it clear that he's opposed to all of these changes. Of course, Israel is a sovereign country and what have you. Um, but you know, does the thought not cross his mind that actually he may be beginning to risk the relationship with the country that actually sends the most money to Israel each year? Well, I think, you know, Mark, even before we talk about the United States, we should note that there has been an extraordinary outpouring of opposition within Israel. And so mm. you know, we saw in, in the, the heat of the summer, this long march of tens of thousands of people from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem over the course of five days. Um, we've seen now you know, the, the leading trade union business leaders threatened to shut the country down. We've seen, you know, the Israeli reservists, the, the elite pilots saying, we're not going to um, report to duty for an extremist government like this if it pushes through the law that it just pushed through. So there's extraordinary domestic opposition. Now, in the United States, you know, this is a complicated issue. And, and maybe there's a, a larger topic we should talk about. Um, you know, Biden has, you know, on the one hand, demonstrated his distaste for what Netanyahu is doing. Um, he only belatedly invited him to the United States. You know, there's a long period of time with no meeting between the U.S. president and the Israeli prime minister. Um, even now, it's not clear that it's a White House meeting. It may just be on the sidelines of the General Assembly in September. So it's a real downgrading. And Biden seemed to have done that mainly just to kind of get rid of a campaign issue. Mm. Um, he, 
there is clearly growing opposition to Netanyahu and, and a greater sense of distance from Israel on the part of Amer many American Jews. Now, this is not APEC, which is, you know, the kind of the, the far-right conservative element of American Jewry, but, but the vast majority of American Jews are, are liberal Democrats. They um, don't like what Netanyahu stands for. Um, Netanyahu basically seems to have decided he doesn't care about them. Mm. You know, his political future in the United States rests with the Christian evangelicals who, you know, have a very odd reasons for supporting Israel. They see Israel's existence as a, you know, a necessary prelude to the second coming of Christ. So for these kind of religious regions, um, they are strong backers of Netanyahu. Um, but of course, they vote Republican. So none of this does much good for Democratic support. On the other hand, um, the Democratic, you know, the Congress, you know, the Democratic Senate, the, the, the you know, almost majority in the House, um, you don't see many Democrats standing up to Israel yet. I think they all seem to be worried about primary challenges and the like. So there's not much courage there, even though um, all the polling shows that um, the American public in general and American Jews are very upset with the direction of, you know, of, of what we've seen. And mm -hmm. to the point that, you know, two former U.S. ambassadors to Israel just this week have said it's time to re-examine this massive military aid that the United States gives every year to Israel, $3.8 billion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times columnist, came out with a, you know, a, a very good column saying, why are we doing this? You know, Israel's a rich country. That 3.8 billion could go a long way if you gave it to poor countries. And in any event, that money is making the United States government complicit in Israeli abuses, in the repression, in the occupation, in the apartheid. Why don't we start talking about this? And, you know, so the, the conversation is beginning and beginning, you know, not on the extreme left, but, but you know, in very centrist places. So we'll have to see where this goes. But I have noticed, you know, a very clear change in tone in discussions about Israel in the United States. A new realism, perhaps, because as you were mentioning, um, Netanyahu and, and uh, these strange alliances that have developed in recent years, I was also thinking about um, Prime Minister Orban in Hungary. Um, uh, it, it, it is a, a, a Netanyahu has been quite happy to to sit down and, and make arrangements with quite strange bedfellows. And I was just thinking beyond beyond that, um, Ken, because you talked about the what was what has been going on in Israel and uh, the fact that these demonstrations have been huge and long lasting. The fact that various parts of civil and military society said they just don't want to cooperate. But where do you think this goes now? Now this legislation has gone through, where, where does that leave, um, you know, liberal opinion uh, in Israel, um, moderate opinion, if you like, secular opinion? Where, 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 do, where does it go now? Do, do they continue to protest, or are we now beginning to see this the the, the, the tide this tide kind of sweeping in, and 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 people could be swept away? Yeah. Well, let me first touch on your Orban point, which you mentioned briefly, because mm. I do think it's very odd that Netanyahu cozies up to Orban. And it sort of shows, you know, he's willing to take his support wherever he finds it. What makes this odd is that Orban is blatantly anti-Semitic, you know, mm -hmm. but the main target of his anti-Semitism is George Soros. 
And, mm -hmm. and you know, it, it, I think Peter Beinart has written about this, like how is it that an anti-Semite like Orban can embrace the Israeli prime minister? Well, it's because Orban likes the ethnic nationalism of Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. What he doesn't like is the liberalism of, of most Jews. And so he can be against Jews as a whole because they represent the sort of, you know, liberal cosmopolitanism, the, the you know, respect for rights that he does not practice at home. Um, but if you have a fellow nationalist, a fellow aspiring autocrat, why not embrace him even if he is Jewish? And so, you know, that odd combination is why Orban embraces Netanyahu and Netanyahu is willing to embrace an, an anti-Semite just to get more political support. And by the way, Kate, I know you're going to continue, but, but, but I think that both Orban and Netanyahu employed the same, um, you know, political consultant to, to help them win power. Um, and and tar targeting George Soros was was one of the key things that this uh, this political consultant advised and pushed for. It does seem quite bizarre to people looking in that this very strange relationship has developed. But yeah. Anyway, Mark, coming back to your question about Israel, yeah. I, mean, we, I mean, obviously we don't know. This is, you know, this is the key moment. Um, it's difficult to sustain a popular movement. I think the, you know, Israelis have been remarkable by coming out in large numbers, you know, every single weekend to protest this, you know, this bill while it was pending. Uh, you know, will the enactment of the bill defuse it or will it outrage people? We don't know. You know, mm. but that um, that's the big question. And I think this is the moment, you know, so we've seen these threats of a general strike, in essence, by the main trade union and, and the main business leaders. Will they live up to that or not? You know, we'll know within the next day or two. Yes. And, and, and the, there is, of course, the argument that essentially people in the occupied Palestinian territories have been subject to this kind of extrajudicial extra regime for 50 years. Uh, and there's a, a kind of question out there, too, is, you know, with with so many people demonstrating in Israel, so many Israelis, did, did, did they did they understand? Did they appreciate that this has been happening uh, to Palestinians? And has there been the beginnings of a kind of a, of a coming together, if you like, a reckoning that basically, you know, e equal rights <laughs> apply to all and that, um, you know, lessons can be learned and there could be solidarity? You know, Mark, I mean. It's obviously very difficult to sum up the views of tens of thousands of people on the street. Mm. Um, but overall, I have been disappointed by how focused the demonstrations have been on the potential consequences of this compromising of judicial independence. It really has been focused on what this would mean within Israel proper, within Green Line Israel. Um, there's been relatively little discussion about what it would mean within the Yakima territory. And, and I think we have to note that while the Supreme Court every once in a while has stepped in. You know, there was one case where on grounds of, you know, unreasonableness, it, it ordered a, a colonel to be prosecuted for overseeing the beating of Palestinians. You know, the, the court has stood in the way of, of recognition of certain, you know, technically legal outposts. Um, and so, you know, there is a significance to the occupied territory, but we have to recognize that the court has allowed most Israeli practices to go forward. And, and indeed, you know, perhaps the most controversial practice, which is the settlements, the court has ducked. It has refused to address the legality of the settlements because it can't. I mean, the settlements are so clearly illegal under Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Indeed, um, you know, they represent the kind of transfer 
by an occupying power of its population into occupied territory, which is a war crime under both the Fourth Geneva Convention and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So, you know, the court, the Israeli Supreme Court can't really look at this. You know, it's spelled out of black and white um, without ruling against the government on such a basic thing. So it just ducks the issue. So we have to recognize there's, there are limits to what the Supreme Court, you know, even now is willing to do for Palestinians. But it clearly is what many Israelis see as holding the line toward this effort of the far right government to create, you know, a far more religious um, and a society without respect mm -hmm. for the rights that, that many um, ordinary Israelis have come to, to you know, expect. Ken, we have a question. This is from Sandra Shatila. Sandra says, um, doesn't the United States want to keep Israel as its watchdog to control Middle East oil and therefore will continue to support Israel no matter who is in power? I don't think this is about oil. You know, I mean, the Israeli government doesn't do anything to help the Saudis or the Emiratis or the Qataris pump oil. You know, they're, they're perfectly capable of doing that on their own. So I don't think that that's what's going on. I, I do think that there you know, traditionally has been an affinity um, between these two democracies. There clearly was concern with um, you know, having a haven for Jews after the Holocaust. So there, there were you know, a natural shared values, but these values are being called into question, you know, not only by these attacks on, on the court, because that represents really a, an attack on the checks and balances that are essential to democracy, but also, and this, we haven't really talked about this much, but also just the, 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 the violence, the repression, the apartheid yeah. of the opposition. I mean, you, you do get the impression, um, Ken, that there's almost an existential struggle going on, clearly within Israeli society, but also between um, the Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and that, I mean, I mean, we've all lived through situations where it's come to a head in a, the most appalling violence and repression. Um, and we're, we're seeing major upheaval right through what you might call historic Palestine. Um, and I suppose that the question is, is because you mentioned this is getting on to the to the to the nub of what we, we must be talking about today. Your recent article in Deutsche Welle, um, because essentially you wrote that while governments speak of a two state solution, of course, that is the language of most governments and it's the language of the United States. Uh, that's where the United Nations is, um, too. Um, you say what we have today is a one state reality and i just wondered what you meant by uh, a one-state reality well i should say that you know i mean yes everybody would love to see two states um you know i think that remains a vision but it increasingly is an unrealistic vision and and i say this I, I, the last time i was in israel and palestine um i took a tour um with breaking the silence this very good israeli human rights group made up of um, former soldiers who basically were so upset by the repression they were forced to engage in that they created their own human rights group. And there are real experts on the settlements there. And so one of them, you know, brought me on a kind of a tour of West Bank hilltops. You could get, you know, basically a bird's eye view of, of how things were being laid out. And there's a very deliberate effort between the settlements and the outposts and the bypass roads to carve up the West Bank. And, you know, there are, they can't get rid of all the Palestinians, but what they can do is make sure that they're completely divided, that the possibility of a contiguous state is virtually impossible. You know, it looks like Swiss cheese. 
And so when I say that there is a one state reality, this is just recognition that this you know, two state solution has become an excuse to not address that reality. You know, mm -hmm. and, and there are many you know, governments that still don't wanna face that reality because if it is one state, you know, if, if, if we recognize that the, you know, the occupation is what, 50 years old, um, that the so-called peace process has been going nowhere for you know, nearing 30 years now, um, it is time to recognize that this, you know, this ideal is just not realistic. And it, you know, it was premised on, oh, you know, there may be some slight territorial swaps, you know, so you, Israel could keep that settlement, but give Palestine that little piece of land. But it was all, you know, modest adjustments. And you would still have, you know, pretty much a contiguous West Bank um, with some kind of way to connect it to Gaza. And that vision is gone. It's just, it's, it's you know, there's a very deliberate effort on the part of the Israeli government to make that impossible. And, and more so now with this coalition. Much worse now. I mean, in other words, they're, they're greenlighting settlement expansion. They probably are now going to, you know, legalize certain of these illegal outposts, even though all the settlements are illegal under international law, but under domestic Israeli law, you know, some are deemed legal and some of the outposts are not. That's probably going to change. Um, they may be moving toward annexation, which is, you know, not a physical change. It's a legal change, but it's another step in that direction of making a two-state solution impossible. And I, you know, this government has, they don't even endorse the two-state solution anymore. They don't even give it lip service. So I think we, we need to look at the one-state reality. Now, why do governments not do that? It's easier to talk about, you know, two-state solution because then they don't have to confront that reality. And when you confront that reality, you basically, if you believe in rights, have two choices. Either you say there should be equal rights for everybody within this one-state reality, or you say, this is apartheid. There's just no two ways about it. Um, and obviously recognizing the apartheid, because that's what it is, mm. um, brings consequences because nobody wants to support apartheid. And so to avoid having to, you know, face that reality, they pretend that the two-state solution is real. This has become, you know, one big dodge. And I think it's important for us to say enough already. You know, let's let's look at the reality. So that no, what you're saying is, is, is fascinating, Ken, because essentially you're using it's, it's the language to describe that reality on the ground, um, apartheid, if you like, um, or as Peter Benhart has said, uh, slow ethnic cleansing, um, annexation, and open air prison. Uh, that's what um, UN Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese told us. Um, the, the other evening, and of course, was essentially formed the, the major part of her, her recent report. So, when, actually, when it comes to another question, when it comes to recognition, because of course, what we see uh, is that you know, Palestine, for instance, has been recognized by a number of member states, along with recognition of Israel. But if, a, if it is a, a one-state reality, then perhaps the argument could be no recognition of any state until there are equal rights. Could that be a move forward? Yeah. But let me, Mark, let me just um, address your question in a few parts, because mm -hmm. you, first you mentioned these different terms. And um, you know, each, I think, is applied to something slightly different. In other words, you know, when Peter Barnard talks about the slow mo motion ethnic cleansing, he's referring to area C of the West Bank. This is the area, 60% of the West Bank, which is still Israeli controlled. It's where all the settlements are. And there's a very deliberate desire to make life there impossible for Palestinians. To they can't even you know add a bedroom on their house. They they can't do anything. And they, the idea is just to gradually get rid of them. 
so that this territory can, you know, be completely Israeli. And that's likely the area that would be annexed, so they can get land without people. Um, now, you know, the open-air prison, I mean, I tend to use that terminology for Gaza. Mm. Um, I think it's more appropriate for Gaza. You know, I, I'm not sure it quite applies to the West Bank because people can actually leave via Jordan, you know, so it, it's, it's a little bit different, whereas in Gaza, most people can't leave at all. So I think that that's the best use of the term. Um, you know, so, and, and annexation, as we mentioned, is a, it's a legal term. Um, it doesn't, you know, change the physical reality, but it's an effort to kind of make it more unchangeable. Um, so these are all, I think, you know, different ways of accurately describing what's going on. And I, for me, apartheid is what characterizes, you know, kind of the overall regime that is now being applied to the millions of Palestinians in the occupied territory. Now, um, so in terms of, you know, should we, you know, what, what is the state of Palestine? You know, what is the Palestinian Authority? Now, clearly the Palestinian Authority has, you know, no more legitimacy. It hasn't held an election in what decade. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, there's this kind of agreement by, you know, both Abbas and frankly, the Israeli government, that they don't want an election because they're afraid that Hamas would win. So um, it's, it's, you know, there's very little legitimacy there. Um, it has become, you know, kind of a route to disperse funds, you know, it's, it has many members and employees and the like. So it's, a, it's you know, a source of income. Um, it also plays a security role for the Israeli government. You know, it's, it's basically a subcontractor for the Israeli government. It doesn't have a lot of power, but it's supposed to keep the lid on and kind of, you know, help control dissent, you know, against Israel, but also against itself. Um, so, you know, this is not an admirable entity. Now, you know, the most important thing in my view these days that the state of Palestine has done is to join the International Criminal Court and give it jurisdiction over crimes in Palestine. And so I think that's important. Now, you know, as I mentioned, the settlements are just, you know, clear-cut war crimes. Mm. Um, these are not hard crimes to prosecute. And, you know, I wish Kareem Khan, the ICC prosecutor, would move it already. You know, um, he's had this investigation open. Now, I think we all remember that his predecessor, Fatou Bensouda, um, when she opened the investigation in Palestine, as well as an investigation in Afghanistan that theoretically could have implicated US torturers in Afghanistan, the Trump administration went apoplectic and actually imposed sanctions on Bensouda and her deputy. I mean, an outrageous interference with the independence of the prosecutor's office. So, you know, those sanctions have been lifted when Biden came into office, but Kareem Khan, you know, he's kind of dealt with Afghanistan by saying, we're gonna look forward, not back. So we're not gonna deal with the US torture. Um, as far as I can tell, he's slow walking the Palestine investigation. This should not be hard. I mean, on the one hand, he should be looking at, you know, Hamas or Islamic Jihad indiscriminate rocket attacks. These are also simple to prosecute. Um, and he should be looking at the settlements, which, you know, there's there's no defense. And it goes right to the top. You know, one prime minister after the other has authorized these. So what's holding him up? And mm -hmm. I fear that it's politics. You know, this is a guy who knows his way around the courtroom. He's a sophisticated prosecutor. Um, he knows how to make a case. He's moved expeditiously in Ukraine. You know, when I spoke to him last, he had 43 mm -hmm. investigators on the ground in Ukraine. He's already indicted Putin. You know, I mean, he knows how to move nothing is happening on the Palestine investigation. Yes, yes. And this, I mean, we've touched on this in previous shows, Kenneth. I mean, it does, it does actually partly explain why many countries in the global south have, have uh, a, a little bit cynical uh, because they see that um, 
that you know the ICC can move very very quickly with Ukraine, but then when it comes to Israel and Palestine, not very much is happening at all. That um, we've got a question here. This is from Deborah in, Pal in Belfast. And Deborah uh, asked, uh, since the Human Rights Watch released its brilliant report not long ago exposing Israeli apartheid, is Ken disappointed as to how few Western politicians have picked up on this? British, politician, British politicians in particular have been told to apologise for using the word apartheid in Parliament. Um, what can we do to advance this important legal framing? Well, I have to say, you know, first, I, overall, I was pleased by the response to the Human Rights Watch Apartheid Report in that um, it was received respectfully and positively by media around the world and by large segments of the public. And, you know, even the Israeli government, which, of course, hated the report, they didn't know what to do with it. You know, it was this incredibly detailed report. They couldn't find anything wrong with it. So they, you know, resorted to the usual name calling, you're biased, you're anti-Semitic, whatever, you know, but, um, you know, they had nothing to say. So it was, in that sense, I feel that it was an important report. And it wasn't just Human Rights Watch. I mean, Beth Salem played a very important role. You know, other Palestinian and Israeli groups have, have found apartheid. Amnesty found apartheid. But this, you know, frankly, every, every serious human rights group that has looked at the issue has found it, it is apartheid. I mean, it's it's just so obviously apartheid, it's hard to even imagine any other characterization. Um, and so increasingly, people who look at the situation objectively share that view. Now, you know, obviously governments are gonna be reluctant because if it is apartheid, they have to change their policy. You know, you can't be supporting a state that is committing the crime, the crime against humanity of apartheid. So um, that has consequences and so instead, they enter denial. They say, oh, we believe in the two-state solution. You know, that's what we're looking for right now. You know, I mean, whenever you hear two-state solution, first thing you should ask is, so what, what are you trying to avoid here by, by you know, by, by supporting this thing that's an impossibility that doesn't exist anymore? You know, what, what's your avoidance strategy here? Come up with something better than that. Um, so I think that, um, you know, yes, of course, governments are the last to adopt this, um, although there are some governments that are pushing it. And, and I should note that, you know, after that report, even the UN Human Rights Council created a, a commission inquiry to look into apartheid and, and similar crimes. So there has been significant pickup, but of course, you know, the big Western backers of Israel are gonna be the last to, to change the, the terminology. But I think it's just a matter of time. And, you know, what Netanyahu did today around the judiciary um, just undermines his credibility further. And at some point people are gonna say, you know, why are we, you know, putting our head in the sand for this guy? Let's just open our eyes and recognize what's really happening. Yes, and I mean, earlier we did talk about the Palestinian Authority, the fact that there haven't been any elections, um, the fact that in many ways uh, it, uh, it acts as a kind of policeman uh, in the occupied territories. Um, and you, you kind of wonder about the sort of effectiveness of um, that Palestinian Authority in, um, in mobilizing support. Um, but there was that quite interesting development just recently where President Abbas went to Beijing and met President Xi. And you certainly get the impression for talk, from talk to, talking to some Palestinians, essentially, for all the reasons that you've been talking about with, with Western countries and the, the, the double standards between Ukraine and Israel, um, the fact that the, the, the aid still keeps on coming, despite the composition of this particular cabinet and what Netanyahu is doing. Do you think that there's 
any possibility that change might be uh, helped uh, be, or, or, or pushed along by other powers, such as China? Or are they, is it, could the BRICS be playing a more prominent role? Do you think this, we're stuck in kind of this aspect of, you know, the idea that the, the, the United States is essentially going to be responsible for, you know, any shuttle diplomacy that goes on and we just con continue on ad infinitum with this status quo? Do you think there could be something coming from China or something coming from somewhere else to force the situation? I mean, not China, but elsewhere, yes. In other words, I mean, we have to recognize, you know, Abbas went to China and said not a word critical of what's going on in Xinjiang. So mm. here are, you know, a million mm. fellow Muslims who are being detained to force them to abandon Islam as well as their language and their culture. And Abbas says not a word, you know, no mm. criticism. So, mm. and, and China, you know, committing its own crimes against humanity in mm. Xinjiang, it is not going to defend human rights anyplace else at this stage. Its top priority is just undermining the UN human rights system so it won't boomerang and, and end up criticizing, you know, China. So, no, I do not look to China as a savior here, um, you know, or to Pakistan, which is, you know, kind of beholden to, to China, or to Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, utterly opposed to any human rights enforcement. But I do think, you know, countries like South Africa, um, there are, you know, there are governments, I think, in Africa and Latin America and parts of Asia um, with respectable human rights records, you know, problems, but, but nonetheless, a willingness to uphold human rights. And we've seen these kinds of broad coalitions coming together and circumventing the United States in various circumstances. You know, that the Treaty to Ban Landmines was secured by a coalition like that against the will of the United States. Same with the Treaty Banning Cluster Munitions. You know, mm. same with the creation of the International Criminal Court. So it is possible to have a sort of a significant um, gathering of small mm. and medium-sized governments that are not the superpowers, but nonetheless have significant moral force. And I would look in particular to South Africa, which you know has been toying with playing this role. It has, you know, obviously an enormous credibility in opposing apartheid given its own history with the crime. Um, and it could take the lead in building a global coalition to fight apartheid in Palestine. Um, mm. But, you know, so far it hasn't been as out there as we'd like it to be. Interesting. Interesting. And do, and do you think also, Ken, because, you you know, you've talked about the 3.8 billion from the United States that goes to the essentially the Israeli military each year. Do you think that um, I suppose also, you know, there must be there must be a debate, too, about how much the USAID goes to, to the military all, all around the world? And whilst I imagine there's quite a lot of support in the United States for uh, Ukraine. I mean, I wondered with the American electorate, is there uh, more of a questioning of these kind of open-ended relationships whereby checks are signed off every year for quite, really quite substantial sums, and there's no real accountability. And when this money is handed over, um, the United States is ignored. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the 3.8 billion to the Israeli military, there is one condition attached, which is they buy American arms. So one way to look at this is it's a you know a huge subsidy for the U.S. arms industry. Mm. But you know, Mark, that, it still makes your same point. You know, why is the U.S. government spending this massive amount of money to help this wealthy country, which really isn't you know threatened at this stage by its neighbors, um, and is uh, completely undermining what was supposed to be shared democratic values? So mm. I think you are going to get that question more and more. You know, there are many better uses of that money, even if it stays in the realm of foreign aid. Think about, you know, the poor countries that are, you know, facing health crises or 
food crises, what they could do with $3.8 billion over a year. You know, so I think there is going to be some rethinking in this. Um, Sarah in London uh, asks, um, uh, hi, Ken, could you please comment on the increasing repression against Palestinian civil society inside Palestine and abroad, specifically the Israeli government designating six Palestinian civil society groups as terrorist organizations, while also, and separately, in the United Kingdom, the government is trying to outlaw the boycott, divest and sanctions movement. What does this say about efforts to hold states that violate international law and abuse human rights like Israel accountable if governments refuse to do so? Well, there are two parts to that question. I mean, first, um, the question is absolutely right. The Israeli government, I guess about two years ago now, um, tried to shut down six key Palestinian civil society organizations, including Al-Haq, you know, the, the leading widely respected human rights group claiming these were terrorist supporters, you know, which is like ridiculous. And so um, this was, you know, an effort to silence the messenger. You know, too much talk about Israel's apartheid. Let's, you know, shut up the groups. Let's try to shut them down. Um, it, you know, it was the same actions that led to Israel's expulsion of Human Rights Watch's Israel-Palestine researcher, um, Omar Shakir. So, you know, people see through this silence the messenger approach, but that's what's going on. Um, now, in terms of um, the British effort, I mean, yes, I, I think there, you know, there's an effort to go after the boycott, sanction, divestment movement. As I understand the bill, it's written quite broadly. In other words, it prevents um, public institutions from using sort of the politics of a of a government in their purchasing or their investment decisions. And so, this goes actually well beyond. Israel-Palestine. I mean, it basically, if you imagine, you know, your university and you have a sports team and you want to make sure that the cotton in their shirts doesn't come from Xinjiang and the forced labor in Xinjiang, <clears throat> this would prevent you from doing that. Mm. You know, or if you want to make sure that you're not, you know, investing in the arms that the Saudis are using to bomb Yemeni civilians, the bill wouldn't let you do that. And of course, the real point of all this is, you know, if you want to make sure that you're not purchasing goods that are made in Israel's war crime settlements, because you don't want to be complicit in those war crimes, you can't do that. Mm. So this is, you know, I mean, not only is it an attack on what should be, you know, the, the free speech and the ability to kind of make these basic sorts of decisions by public institutions, but it's really forcing them to become complicit in human rights violations, all in the name of protecting Israel. Yes, I mean, I think even some government ministers uh, in this country believe that this is a rather hastily put put together piece of legislation. And it, I mean, I think there's a great deal of hope that um, it's going to be challenged quite extensively when it goes to the second chamber, the House of Lords. And there are a whole raft of legal challenges uh, expected too. So I, I'm not sure that it's a, a done deal. And certainly a lot of people and a lot of organisations are hoping that it isn't. Um, Look, we have another question here. This is uh, this is from Debbie in Manchester, and uh, she asks, she said, last week it was reported widely that Palestinian first aiders in the West Bank are now having to wear bulletproof vests and helmets when on the job. Um, where is the justice in all of this? And what 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 a, what a state of affairs that um, essentially first aiders, first responders have to wear uh, bulletproof jackets. What what was your reaction to that, Kenneth? Well, I mean, obviously, one, there's no justice. Um, but two, it is a war crime 
should target medical workers. Okay, mm -hmm. the Geneva Conventions say that medical workers are protected. You know, and so even if they're going in to try to provide first aid to, you know, somebody who is a, a fighter on the other side, they still are protected. Um, you can't impede their arrival. You can't try to, you know, deny people humanitarian or, humanitarian or medical care. And you certainly can't fire at the doctors or the medics or the nurses or the ambulance drivers. And so the fact that these people feel the need to wear bulletproof vests speaks to their experience with repeated attacks and repeated deliberate delays. And these are all, again, basic war crimes under the Fourth Geneva Convention. Mm -hmm. Well, look, um, Ken, we, we are sort of reaching the end of the show. Um, and uh, I'd just like to thank everybody who sent in questions and, and, and everybody who's been in touch. We do actually have, this is, a, a, we'll take a last question. This is from uh, Adam Broomberg. Um, Adam says, I'm grateful for your work and for standing your ground, Kenneth. Uh, against the Israel lobby. Do you think there will be a judicial reckoning as there was with Darfur at the ICC? I think there will be, um, only because I think Kareem Khan, much as he wants to avoid this, recognizes that his credibility is at stake. You know, what he's doing in Ukraine is very important. What he did just in the recent weeks saying he's going to, you know, reopen his, his, his investigation in Sudan because of the new atrocities taking place in Darfur, very important. Um, so he, you know, he knows how to act expeditiously when something, you know, he sees as is both urgent and where the bulk of the world is behind him. Um, does he have the backbone to take something on when certain major Western powers will be unhappy? Unclear, um, but I hope so. And so I, you know, it's still early in his tenure. I think we have to give him a chance. But as I said, I don't think this is a super complicated investigation. It's something he should be able to do. He can't claim lack of resources. He's got 46 investigators from Ukraine. He's got to have one or two for Israel-Palestine. Um, he should be able to move this forward. And I, I think if he doesn't, after a certain period of time, his credibility is very much going to be endangered. And, and finally, Ken, I mean, we've got the um, UN General Assembly uh, in mid-September. Um, it's obviously it's an annual event. It does bring leaders from all over the world together. Uh, and uh, it allows for a great deal of grandstanding, but it also does allow for um, uh, political leaders to meet behind the scenes uh, and uh, to exert pressure uh, and much else besides. Do, I mean, do, do, you, do you think this greater degree of fluidity that we've seen and turmoil more uh, practically uh, in Israel and, the, and the, the more extensive use of violence right across the occupied Palestinian territories. Do you think that this General Assembly will bring uh, will bring things to head to a, a, a bit? There will be much more international condemnation of what Israel is doing and what the Israeli government is doing to uh, its own citizens. Yeah. Well, I think it's a real opportunity. Um, and that, you know, obviously the UN Human Rights Council has now acted quite powerfully by setting up a couple of years ago this Commission of Inquiry. Um, the General Assembly, you know, I don't look at this point for a General Assembly resolution. That's not really what happens in the opening week. But it is an opportunity for leaders, all of whom give speeches, to include um, Israel's apartheid in those speeches. And that could help give impetus to the kind of, you know, broad coalition of smaller and medium-sized governments that I think could move things forward. And I wouldn't spend a lot of time waiting for Joe Biden as an election approaches to take the lead on this. Um, I think, you know, this is going to be have to, have to be a situation where, you know, other governments that are more willing to be guided by human rights take the lead 
and and ultimately the United States will be forced to follow. Right. Well, look, thank you very, very much indeed, Kenneth. Uh, it's been fantastic having you on the show tonight. Um, uh, I think we've we've we certainly have had an extremely deep dive on the situation, and we're very very grateful for your time, uh, for your for your wisdom, uh, and for your expertise. And uh, we're, we're just also so delighted that uh, the right thing happened at Harvard, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'd love to have you back on the show again. So well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all of you that have joined us from all over the world. And uh, until next time, um, we'll we shall see you again. Take care. Bye-bye.